Go ahead and find Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20. Some of the parables Jesus tells just kind of uh, sing on their own. Sometimes they literally interpret themselves. As in, Jesus will tell you exactly what they're about, point by point. Like in the the parable of the sower. There's an explanation that's just about as many words as the parable itself. Some of the parables are so engaging and convicting, they practically preach themselves. You know, I think if you can't make a half-decent sermon out of the story of the prodigal son, then you basically can't make a sermon at all. That parable basically preaches itself. But there are other parables that do not interpret themselves, and if I were asked to preach on them, I wouldn't be nearly as eager as my prodigal son sermon. So today we want to take some of those puzzling parables head-on, and we just want to see what we can do with them. We trust everything Jesus said is full of truth and wisdom, And that if some of his parables are difficult for us to understand, I think we're all on the same page, that this isn't some sort of a problem with Jesus' teaching. It might be a problem with our listening, which is part of what the parable of the sower is about. But we believe if we stick with Jesus, if we listen well, if we mind context, if we read carefully, maybe most importantly, if we'll scrutinize our own hearts and actually examine ourselves the way Jesus is trying to get us to, it's then that we can unearth important things Jesus is trying to tell us. So let's think about, I have two important parables. I'll tell you, I originally had three, but I cut number three because uh, this would have been an hour-long sermon with three. So we're just going to stick with two this evening. So the first is what I'm going to call the unfair parable. This is Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Let's just begin by reading the parable and getting this before us. Matthew 20 and verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You, go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you, go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, (coughs) the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those who were hired first came, They thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he, the master, replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And so the parable concludes. The last will be first 
and the first last. So I think one key to decoding puzzling parables is to pay really close attention to the context in which they're told. When you see what happens around the parable, what's just happened, uh, the interactions Jesus has just had, often sheds light on why this parable is being told in the first place. So, in chapter 19, Jesus has just had this interaction with the rich young ruler we usually call him. He tells him if he wants the eternal life he is seeking, then he needs to go, this is verse 21, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and you follow me. And when he leaves sorrowful because of all that he had, Jesus goes on to talk about the many roadblocks that rich folks encounter often in their, in their discipleship in verses 23 through 26. Now, who pipes up next but Peter? This is Matthew 19 and verse 27. And Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And so what Peter points out is what the rich young ruler has refused to do, leave all to follow Jesus, Peter says that's exactly what we have done. We were the ones who left our fishing boats bobbing in the water to follow you, and we followed you 24-7. In verse 21, he told the rich young ruler, those who do this will have treasure in heaven. What Peter's asking in a sense is, well, Jesus, we've done what you said. Where's our treasure? What will we get for this? Verse 28 is Jesus' reply to that. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, In the new world, or in the new age, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. So the question is, will Peter and the apostles, who did the thing Jesus told the rich young ruler to do, Will they have treasure? Will they have treasure in heaven? And the answer is yes. Here is what the rich young ruler did not understand about following Jesus. All he saw was what he stood to lose if he followed Jesus. And the plight of rich folks is often they, have, they stand to lose a lot. But disciples, like Peter, they see what they stand to gain not just what they stand to lose. Whatever losses or hardship we might experience for following in Jesus pales in comparison to what we gain in the new age. Look in chapter 19 and verse 30. See if this sounds familiar. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's Jesus' conclusion to this reaction, this interaction with with Peter. What he's pointing out is the typical human calculations of the rich young ruler, the calculation that says, I can't afford to follow Jesus, this calculation is misguided in Jesus' kingdom. Because in Jesus' kingdom, things get turned upside down. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom for the poor. It's a kingdom for the losers. It's a kingdom for the lowly, for the last. So I want you to notice, this is one of those places where the chapter break is just pretty poor. I can criticize that. The chapter breaks are not inspired. Bookend of the parable are the same phrase. Chapter 19 and verse 30, many who are first will be last and the last first. And this is 20 and verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. And what this tells us, what this clues us into, basically is the lesson of the whole parable. The rewards of Jesus' kingdom are not handed out in a way any of us would expect. We expect the first to be first and the last to be last. 
And Jesus says, no, it's the other way. Your expectations, whatever they are about my kingdom, if, if your expectations are modeled after what you see in the world and what the world has conditioned you to think the way things work is, it's probably exactly wrong. In my kingdom, the last are first, and the first are last. And it's with that that Jesus launches into the parable that we've begun our point by reading. I'm not going to read it again. We'll just sort of talk through it now. So beginning in chapter 20 and verse 1, um, Jesus paints a simple and familiar enough scene for Jesus' hearers. Um, landowners, in, 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 uh, especially in times of harvest, often needed extra help in their fields. And it was really important to get that help because you couldn't afford to leave, you know, to leave fruit on the vine when you had that fruit to harvest. Otherwise, it's going to go bad. Otherwise, we're not going to be profitable. Uh, they didn't have enough workers for harvest time for these really busy peak seasons. And so they would go out and employ day laborers, especially in harvest time. There was a denomination of money that was defined as being a single day's wage for a laborer. That was called a denarius. Definition of denarius is what a, a laborer stands to earn for a day's work. The Jewish workday consisted of, of 12 hours with a, with a break or two in there probably. But it went from sunup to sundown, roughly 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so the first workers, it goes out and hires, begin work at the crack of dawn at 6 a.m., and they agree in verse 2 to the wage, the standard wage for this sort of work, a day's wage, a denarius. But as they work, the owner seems to realize there still aren't enough workers to accomplish everything he needs to. There's a lot more fruit to harvest than they have workers to harvest it. And so he goes out and gets more laborers at about 9 a.m. And still the problem is there. And so at noon he goes out and gets some more. And still at 3 he realizes we're not going to get all this today. And so he goes out and hires more. And then finally at the, at the 11th hour, at 5 p.m., only a, a, an hour of daylight left, he goes out and he gets more workers who will only work that last hour of the day. Now I want you to notice with all the subsequent workers, after the, the people he hires at the first of the day, everyone after that, he does not agree to a denarius with any of them. He doesn't agree to a specific amount. Verse 4 Whatever is right, I will give you. He doesn't agree to a particular wage. He says, I will pay you what is right. Now, I think it's safe to assume that these latter workers would have assumed they would receive a lesser wage or wage in proportion to the hours that they worked. I think that's reasonable. Well, in verse 8, the workers line up to be paid, and they begin with the most recent workers, the workers who in uh, the human sort of uh, economic expectations, would receive the least. But astonishingly, imagine yourself in their shoes. You worked one hour, and then you come and you, you go in this line, and these guys who worked the least receive the pay promised to those who worked the most. This is verse 9. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. And of course, that raises the expectations of all the other workers, especially those guys who've been out there 12 hours. They're thinking, if he's handing out a denarius for one hour of work, what's he going to hand out for 12 hours of work? Are we about to get two weeks' pay for today's work? But instead, everybody ends up getting the same wage, to which those 12-hour guys say, no fair. Now, I think the most important part of the parable comes in the owner's reply. Let's read that again, verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend... I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. 
I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose, to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? What he says is, you have mischaracterized what has happened here as some big injustice against you, as if I have cheated you in some way. But he reminds the 12-hour worker, you've only received exactly the pay we agreed on at the beginning of the day in verse 2. The understanding was, I'm going to pay you a denarius, and I've paid you a denarius. What exactly have I done? Where is the injustice here? He says, you have not been wronged, have you? No promises have been broken. You're going to be able to feed your family today because I paid you the wage we agreed on. And so what he points out is what you're grumbling about actually is not some injustice. What you're really grumbling about is that I'm too generous. You're not grumbling about something wrong I've done. You're you're grumbling about something virtuous that I have done. You're just mad I didn't do it for you. What they're upset about, basically, is that he is too gracious. So, that's the parable as it sort of sits on the page. What in the world do we say about this? What's uh, the application of this parable? Here's the first interesting thing about this parable as we step back from it a little bit. Normally, parables are true to life. The parable of the sower makes sense of the way things really work in the world. Seeds really don't grow well in thorny soil. The reason the parable makes sense is because it's true to life in that way. But this parable is not true to life. This is not the way the world normally works. This is a parable where the normal things, the normal way of things get turned upside down. Remember the bookends? In 1930 and 2016, that's actually part of the point. The first or last and the last or first. Equal pay for unequal work, that was not the normal practice of first century Judah. What Jesus is getting at is, it is normal in the kingdom of God. It is normal in the kingdom of God where grace and not merit is the basis on which God deals with each of us. In Jesus' kingdom... The first are last, and the last are first. I'd like to read you a paragraph of someone who I think nailed, uh, nailed it pretty well, and I just didn't think I could say it much better than him. He said, Jesus' story makes no economic sense, and that was his intent. He was giving us a parable about grace, which cannot be calculated like a day's wage. The employer in Jesus' story did not cheat the full-day workers, no. The full-day workers got what they promised, what they were promised. Their discontent arose from the scandalous mathematics of grace. They could not accept that their employer had the right to do what he wanted with his money when it meant paying scoundrels 12 times what they deserved. Significantly, many Christians who study this parable identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers. And the employer's strange behavior baffles us as it did the original hearers. We risk missing the story's point that God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit, for none of us come close to satisfying God's requirements of living a perfect life. If paid based on fairness, remember we would all end up in hell. I think this parable calls us to examine our own self-understanding. Just who are we? And just how do we relate to God? Who do we think we are? 
Are we God's diligent workers who He owes? Are we people who God is lucky to have on His team? Or are we someone who has been blessed? Not because we are so great. Not because we have worked so hard and accomplished so much that God couldn't have done without us. Are we someone who has been blessed? Not because we are so great, but because God is so gracious. Is that who we are? The question this parable raises is, just who do you think you are? Do you think God owes you? Or do you think that you owe God? We should be thanking God that he is not fair to us. Thank God he doesn't pay us the wage we deserve, which is death. And so that's my crack at the, uh, the unfair parable. It's a parable that revels in unfairness, and Jesus says... In the economy of the kingdom of God, that's the way it works. The first are last and the last are first. The lowly are exalted and the exalted are laid low. So that brings us to parable number two. What I'm going to call the dishonest parable, it's found in Luke 16. Luke 16. So let's just begin by reading it again. Luke 16 and verse 1. Luke 16 and verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Verse 8 says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then this is, I think, Jesus' so what of of the parable. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. So the parable begins with a rich man with a large estate, many assets to manage. Uh, This man has a steward, a manager to oversee oversee his holdings, a sort of business business manager, a sort of high-ranking servant. But it comes to his attention that this, this servant, this steward, has been accused of squandering and wasting his, his uh, employer's holdings. And so the owner calls the steward, he demands an explanation, and he ends up firing him. Although it seems like the uh, firing isn't immediately enforced. There's a time perhaps to get his affairs in order or something, because he's still able to operate in some capacity as steward for a, for a time after this. He still has charge over his master's assets for a little while longer. Well... We have the internal monologue of the steward who is in crisis, and he says, what in the world am I going to do? First of all, my reputation has been ruined to to be fired in this way. Uh, 
my options now are to beg, I'm, I'm too proud to do that, or to, to work with my hands, and I'm too weak for that, too weak for manual labor. And so what he does is he goes and formulates a plan. that He can't get his same job back. That's, that's out of the question. But he says, what I can do is win the favor of other people in town that my master has dealings with. With what authority I have left as a steward, before I'm let loose, I'm going to go approach my master's debtors, I'm going to ask exactly how much they owe my master, and then, deviously, dishonestly, I'm going to tell them to erase the amount of debt. Maybe he has the sort of ledger, and he says, let's go ahead and erase this number, and let's go ahead and write a lesser amount. He's cutting deals with people who owe his master money in order to try to curry favor with these other business owners to perhaps feather his own nest, that when he falls, they will give him a soft place to land. They'll appreciate the, the deal they've given them, and they'll say, ah, why don't you come over here? You've done me a solid. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll help you out. Maybe one of them will appreciate the break on the bill and offer him a job. Well, when the steward finally gives the books back to the boss, uh, the boss sees what he has done. He realizes it. This hasn't escaped his notice. And how does the boss react? I think he doesn't react how we'd probably expect him. This is uh, verse 8 again. The master commended the dishonest manager, for his shrewdness. So he's called dishonest. No bones about it. There's no uh, finessing what it is that happens here. This is blatant dishonesty. This is lying would be the word for it. He says, I can't call it anything but dishonest, and yet I've got to give it to you. It was a shrewd move. One man said, this parable is without a doubt the most controversial of the Lord's parables. It's controversial because the main character, the guy who is commended in the story in verse 8, is unsavory and and just downright dishonest. And we can't call it anything other than that. It's funny that being the case, lots of interpreters have have tried to do a lot of mental gymnastics to kind of save the parable or baptize it, make it less unsavory. They they do it by making it sort of these uh, uh, extravagant allegories. So one interpreter supposed that the master in the story symbolized the Romans, and the steward in the story symbolized the tax collectors for the Romans, and that the debtors in the story symbolized the Jewish people. And the point this interpretation says is that graciousness by the tax collectors toward their own people would at last bring praise from the Romans after all. I just don't even know where to start with that. Another interpreter sees the master as God, and the steward in the story are the Pharisees, who, for their own advantage, seek to diminish the real demands of God from his people. The Pharisees are going around and erasing God's requirements and writing their own, except the problem with that is, why in the world would God ever commend them for that? In the New Testament, he's doing the opposite of commending them for that. Those are, of course, lame allegories. We're after the point, and actually, I think Jesus is fairly clear about what that point is. The most astounding thing about the parable is the master's response to the steward who had recently robbed him. That's the most astounding thing. It's verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He doesn't commend the dishonesty. He does commend his shrewdness, his wiliness, his ability to think through a difficult situation and to find a way out. The boss has been cheated out of some money rightfully owed to him. But he says here in verse 8, I've got to hand it to you. You're resourceful. Got to hand it to you. That was some foresight you showed. 
That was some ingenuity. Maybe he's even thinking to himself in verse 8, you know, if you were that savvy a businessman before, maybe I wouldn't have fired you. So, what in the world could we take from this parable and, and bring into our lives? What does this have to say to us? In what way can this dishonest, unprincipled man's behavior provide any sort of useful model for a Christian? Verse 8, one more time, and we'll talk through Jesus' fuller answer. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, and then Jesus comments, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So Jesus compares the shrewdness of the sons of the world. The manager stands for that, sons of the world. He compares the shrewdness of the sons of the world to the lack of shrewdness of the sons of light. Worldly people often have a better head on their shoulders than my people. He's making an observation. Why is it that dishonest and worldly people often have more sense, more ingenuity, more foresight than God's people? Why does savvy so often have to be joined together with dishonesty? Are we really to think that the two options, the only two options in the world are to be shrewd and dishonest or naive and honest? Are those the only two options? That we be sort of wise to know how the way, the way the world works and then use that to our evil purposes? Or we be simpletons who tell the truth but then get one pulled over on them all the time? Are we to really think those are the only two things we're allowed to be? Are those the only two options? Can't my people be shrewd? and honest? Can't we be wise and innocent? God's people should be holy. They should be blameless. They should be innocent. But that's no excuse for naivete. That's no excuse for ineffectiveness. They don't have to go together. Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew ten sixteen? Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So here's the situation We, God's people, the flock of God, are being sent into a really difficult and treacherous world. So, Jesus says, here's what you do. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's your mission, disciple. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's how you navigate a hostile, evil world. I always find that interesting. Jesus tells Christians to be like a serpent. Who is the most famous serpent in the Bible? Well, it's the devil in the garden. No one thinks Jesus wants us to emulate the devil's lies or the devil's evil. But you have to admit, in the garden, between Adam and Eve and Satan, Satan is the wiser one in a narrow sense. The woman is naive. She believes what he says. She doesn't know what's going on. He does know what's going on. What I think he's saying is, in the same way, our worldly counterparts as ungodly as they can be, often outclass us in shrewdness and in effort and in motivation. So let me give you a few examples, just sort of a little brainstorm. Advertising departments think daily about how to get their message out effectively and winsomely so that they can align their pockets. Meanwhile, God's people are too timid to share the best news that has ever happened in the history of the world. Or, we want to share it, but we have no idea how to do that effectively. 
We hadn't thought that through with anything like the shrewdness of those advertising departments. Clearly, Jesus wouldn't want us to emulate their greedy motives or to emulate sort of underhanded techniques of advertising and things like that. But you've got to admit, they think a lot about getting a message out in perhaps a way that we don't. You know, CEOs expertly manage companies. They're paid huge sums of money to do it. They're paid to get the most out of those companies, to wring the most profit out of those companies as possible. Leadership is understood to be a really crucial thing. And meanwhile, I know of churches that are perfectly content to go without any formal leadership, to go without elders, decade after decade, and they actually prefer it that way because then I get to have my vote in the business meeting. Academics have an unquenchable thirst for secular knowledge, many fields. Meanwhile, God's people hardly ever crack open their Bibles, have no curiosity about the mysteries of the universe and God himself. What Jesus is saying is, I wish God's people would expend something like the effort and shrewdness toward God's things that worldly people expend toward the world's things. Can we not do that? Can we not exercise some shrewdness as we pursue God? Or do we have to just be naive and simple in we, as we do that? In verse 9, he makes a specific application to this. Verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you, uh, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. Sort of playing off the storyline the storyline of the, uh, of the uh, dishonest manager who makes friends with that wealth. But, but he's focusing here specifically on earthly wealth, on money's role in all of this. Part of what he's getting at, I think, is the world is exceedingly shrewd with and about money, even as they're idolatrous about it, of course. Jesus wants us to see that being idolatrous and shrewd with money or being godly and dumb with money, these are not the only two options. There's a third option. How about be shrewd with handling the unrighteous wealth, use it, Don't be used by it. Understand, of course it holds no value in the last day, but at the same time, as we use that, we're storing up heavenly wealth and eternal eternal dwellings. We don't have to choose between being idolatrous and shrewd or, or being godly and dumb. We can be godly and shrewd. That should be the Christian's mission. I don't think I understand everything about this parable still, I'll tell you that, but I think the central point Jesus is driving at is quite simple. This is my one-sentence summary. Be as shrewd and wise about God's things as worldly people are about worldly things. That should be a big mission we have. We should be as shrewd and wise. We should understand the way the world works as we pursue God's perfect and holy ends. We should be as shrewd and wise about that as worldly people are about their worldly things. We shouldn't use the fact that we are being holy and innocent and blameless as an excuse to be dumb or naive or simple. He doesn't ask us in this parable to emulate the dishonesty of the steward. He doesn't ask us to be sinful. He doesn't commend the dishonest steward for his dishonesty. What he does tell us is, you should learn to walk wisely, and you should learn to walk shrewdly, and not to be naive. One of the things I've come to realize, skip too far ahead, one of the things I've come to realize about the way Jesus spoke and taught was that Jesus was not afraid to tell a riddle. Jesus was not afraid to make a vague pronouncement that could be misunderstood. And he was not afraid to tell a puzzling story. And then just let his hearers sort of stew on it for a while. I think part of the reason he does this is because some truths have to be digested and they can't just be spoon-fed. 
Or to put it another way, a joke isn't funny if I have to explain it. And some parables don't hit home unless we sit with them for a while. And they sort of dawn on us. And we say, oh, that's what he was talking about. So let me end with two things to remember from these two puzzling parables. Number one, the fact that our work is for God isn't an excuse for naivete or ineffectiveness. The fact that our work is for God is an excuse, is not an excuse for naivete or ineffectiveness. Number two, but at the same time, remember God's grace is greater than our work. The fact that our work is for God isn't an excuse for naivete or ineffectiveness, but at the same time, remember God's grace is greater than our work. Maybe there's someone here that needs to come and appeal for God's grace. He will pay you, not a wage, thank God. He will not pay you the wages of sin, which is what we have to our account, which is death. He will give us a grace that we don't deserve, and he will simply ask, invite us to come and receive it. Receive it on his terms and his way, but receive it. Simply open our hand and say thank you, and say, what can I do for you, God? If there's anyone that needs to respond, come forward now as we stand and sing. Waiting, oh, come to him now, waiting today.